Hello friends, Connor J. Nepo here for yet another episode of Connor Reads, Just Another Libertarian Podcast. Today we are continuing to read Friedrich Gustus von Hayek's Why I Am Not a Conservative, published in 1960. So, let's get to it. Part 4. I have already referred to the differences between conservatism and liberalism in the purely intellectual field. But I must return to them because the characteristic conservative attitude here not only is a serious weakness of conservatism, but tends to harm any cause which allies itself with it. Conservatives feel instinctively that it is new ideas more than anything else that cause change. But from its point of view, rightly, conservatism fears new ideas because it has no distinctive principles of its own to oppose them. And, by its distrust of theory and its lack of imagination concerning anything except that which experience has already proved, it deprives itself of the weapons needed in the struggle of ideas. Unlike liberalism, with its fundamental belief in the long-range power of ideas, conservatism is bound by the stock of ideas inherited at a given time. And since it does not really believe in the power of argument, its last resort is generally a claim to superior wisdom, based on self-arrogated superior quality. The difference shows itself most clearly in the different attitudes of the two traditions to the advance of knowledge. Though the liberal certainly does not regard all change as progress, he does regard the advance of knowledge as one of the chief aims of human effort and expects from it the gradual solution of such problems and difficulties as we can hope to solve. Without preferring the new merely because it is new, the liberal is aware that it is the, of the essence of human achievement that it produces something new, and he is prepared to come to terms with new knowledge, whether he likes its immediate effects or not. Personally, I find that the most objectionable feature of the conservative attitude is its propensity to reject well-substantiated new knowledge because it dislikes some of the consequences which seem to follow from it, or, to put it bluntly, it's obscuritism. I will not deny that scientists as much as others are given to fads and fashions, and that we have much reason to be cautious in accepting the conclusions that they draw from their latest theories. But the reasons for our reluctance must themselves be rational, and must be kept separate from our regret that the new theories upset our cherished beliefs. I can have little patience with those who oppose, for instance, the theory of evolution, or what are called mechanistic explanations of the phenomena of life because of certain moral consequences, which at first seem to follow from these theories, and still less with those who regard it as irrelevant or impious to ask certain questions at all. By refusing to face the facts, the conservative only weakens his own position. Frequently, the conclusions which rationalist presumption draws from new scientific insights do not at all follow from them, but only by actively taking part in the elaboration of the consequences of new discoveries do we learn whether or not they fit into our world picture and, if so, how. Should our moral beliefs really prove to be dependent on factual assumptions shown to be incorrect, it would hardly be moral to defend them by refusing to acknowledge facts. Connected with the conservative distrust of the new and the strange is its hostility to internationalism and its pronounce to a strident nationalism. Here is another source of its weakness in the struggle of ideas. It cannot alter the fact that the ideas which are changing our civilization respect no boundaries. 
but refusal to acquaint oneself with new ideas merely deprives one of the power of effectively countering them when necessary. The growth of ideas is an international process, and only those who fully take part in the discussion will be able to exercise a significant influence. It is no real argument to say that an idea is un-American or un-German, nor is a mistaking or vicious ideal better for having been conceived by one of our compatriots. A great deal more might be said about the close connection between conservatism and nationalism, but I shall not dwell on this point because it might be felt that my personal position makes me unable to sympathize with any form of nationalism. I will merely add that it is this nationalistic bias which frequently provides the bridge from conservatism to collectivism. To think in terms of our industry or resource is only a short step away from demanding that these national assets be directed in the national interests. But in this respect, the continental liberalism, which derives from the French Revolution, is little better than conservatism. I need hardly say that nationalism of this sort is something very different from patriotism, and that an aversion to nationalism is fully compatible with a deep attachment to national traditions. But the fact that I prefer and feel reverence for some of the traditions of my society need not be the cause of hostility to what is strange and different. Only at first foes it seemed paradoxical that the anti-internationalism of conservatism is so frequently associated with imperialism. But the more a person dislikes the strange and thinks his own way superior, the more he tends it to regard it as his mission to civilize other not by the voluntary and unhappened intercourse which the liberal favors, but by bringing them the blessings of efficient government. It is significant that here again we frequently find the conservatives joining hands with the socialists against the liberals, not only in England where the Webbs and their Fabians were outspoken imperialists, or in Germany where state socialism and colonial expansionism went together and found the support of the same groups of socialists of the chair, but also in the United States where even at the time of the first Roosevelt it could be observed, the Jingos and the social reformers have gotten together and have formed a political party which threatened to capture the government and use it for their program of Caesaristic paternalism, a danger which now seems to have been averted only by the other parties having adopted their program in a somewhat milder degree and form. 5. There is one respect, however, in which there is justification for saying that the liberal occupies a position midway between the socialist and the conservative. He is as far from the crude rationalism of the socialist, who wants to reconstruct all social institutions according to a pattern prescribed by his individual reason, as from the mysticism to which the conservative so frequently has to resort. What I have described as a liberal position shares with conservatism a distrust of reason to the extent that the liberal is very much aware that we do not know all the answers, and he, that he is not aware that the answers he has are certainly the right ones, or even that we can find all the answers. He also does not disdain to seek assistance from whatever non-rational institutions or habits have proved their worth. The liberal differs from the conservatism in his willingness to face this ignorance and to admit how little we know without claiming the authority of supernatural forces of knowledge where his reason fails him. It has to be admitted that in some respects the liberal is fundamentally a skeptic, but it seems to require a certain degree of diffidence to let others seek their happiness in their own fashion and to adhere consistently to that tolerance which is an essential character of liberalism.
There is no reason why this need mean an absence of religious belief on the part of the liberal. Unlike the rationalism of the French Revolution, true liberalism has no quarrel with religion, and I can only deplore the militant and essentially illiberal anti-religionism which animated so much of 19th century continental liberalism. That this is not essential to liberalism is clearly shown by its English ancestors, the old Whigs, who, if anything, were much too closely allied with a particular religious belief. What distinguishes the liberal from the conservative here is that, however profound his own spiritual beliefs, he will never, never regard himself as entitled to impose them on others, and that for him the spiritual and the temporal are different sphere, which ought not to be confused. 6. What I have said should suffice to explain why I do not regard myself as a conservative. Many people will feel, however, that the position which emerges is hardly what they used to call liberal. I must therefore now face the question of whether this name is today the appropriate name for the party of liberty. I have already indicated that, though I have all my life described myself as liberal, I have done so recently with increasing misgivings not only because in the United States this term constantly gives rise to misunderstandings, but also because I have become more and more aware of the great gulf that exists between my position and the rationalistic continental liberalism, or even the English liberalism of the utilitarians. If liberalism still, what it meant, still meant what it meant to an English historian who in 1827 can speak of the revolution of 1688 as the triumph of those principles which in the language of the present day are denominated liberal or constitutional, end quote. Or if one could still, with Lord Acton, speak of Burke, Maculay, and Gladstone as the three greatest liberals. Or if one could still, with Harold Lasky, regard Tocqueville and Lord Acton as the essential liberals of the 19th century. I should indeed be only too proud to describe myself by that name. But, much as I am tempted to call their liberalism true liberalism, I must, I must recognize that the majority of continental liberals stood for ideas to which these men were strongly opposed, and that they were led more by a desire to impose upon the world a preconceived rational pattern than to provide opportunity for free growth. The same is largely true of what has called itself liberalism in England, at least since the time of Lloyd George. It is thus necessary to recognize that what I have called liberalism has little to do with any political movement that goes under that name today. It is also questionable whether the historical associations which that name carries today are conducive to the success of any movement. Whether in these circumstances one ought to make an effort to rescue the term from what one feels is its misuse is a question on which opinions may well differ. I myself feel more and more that to use it without long explanations causes too much confusion, and that as a label it has become more of a ballast than a source of strength. In the United States, where it has become almost impossible to use liberal in the sense in which I have used it, the term libertarian has been used instead. It may be the answer, but for my part, I find it singularly unattractive. For my taste, it carries too much the flavor of a manufactured term and of a substitute. What I should want is a word which describes the party of life, the party that favors free growth and spontaneous evolution. But I have racked my brain unsuccessfully to find a descriptive term which commends itself. 7. We should remember, however, that when the ideals which I have been trying to restate first began to spread through the Western world, 
the party which represented them had a generally recognized name. It was the ideals of the English Whigs that inspired what later came to be known as a liberal movement in the whole of Europe, and that provided the conceptions that the American colonists carried with them, and which guided them in their struggle for independence and in the establishment of their constitution. Indeed, until the character of this tradition was altered by the excretions due to the French Revolution, with its totalitarian democracy and socialist leanings, Whig was the name by which the Party of Liberty was generally known. The name died in the country of its birth partly because, for a time, the principles for which it stood were no longer distinctive of a particular party, and partly because the men who bore the name did not remain true to those principles. The Whig parties of the 19th century in both Britain and the United States finally brought discredit to the name among the radicals. But it is still true that, since liberalism took the place of Whiggism only after the movement for liberty had absorbed the crude and militant rationalism of the French Revolution, and since our task must largely be to free that tradition from the over-rationalistic, nationalistic, and socialistic influences which have intruded into it, Whiggism is historically the correct name for the ideas in which I believe. The more I learn about the evolution of ideas, the more I have become aware that I am simply an unrepentant old Whig, with the stress on the old. To confess oneself as an old Whig does not mean, of course, that one wants to go back to where we were at the end of the 17th century. It has been one of the purposes of this book to show that the doctrines then first stated continue to grow and continue to develop until about 70 or 80 years ago, even though they were no longer the chief aim of a distinct party. We have since learned much that should enable us to restate them in a more satisfactory and effective form. But though they require restatement in the light of our present knowledge, the basic principles are still those of the old Whigs. True, the later history of the party that bore that name has made some historians doubt where, they, where there was a distinct body of Whig principles. But I can agree with Lord Acting that Though some of the patriarchs of the doctrine were the most infamous of men, the notion of a higher law above municipal codes with which Whiggism began is a supreme achievement of Englishmen and their bequest to the nation, end quote. And we may add, to the world, it is the doctrine which is at the basis of the common tradition of the Anglo-Saxon countries. It is the doctrine from which continental liberalism took what is valuable in it. It is a doctrine on which the American system of government is based. In its pure form, it is represented in the United States, not by the radicalism of Jefferson, nor by the conservatism of Hamilton or even of John Adams, but by the ideas of James Madison, the father of the Constitution. I do not know whether to revive that old name is practical politics. That to the mass of people, both in the Anglo-Saxon world and elsewhere, it is today probably a term without definite associations, is perhaps more an advantage than a drawback. To those familiar with the history of ideas, it is probably the only name that quite expresses what the tradition means. That, both for the genuine conservatives and still more for the many socialists turned conservative, Whiggism is a name for their pet aversion, shows a sound instinct on their part. It has been the name for the only set of ideals that has consistently opposed all arbitrary power. Number eight. It may well be asked whether the name really matters so much. 
in a country like the United States, which on the whole has free institutions and where, therefore, the defense of the existing is often a defense of freedom, it might not make so much difference if the defenders of freedom call themselves conservatives. Although even here, the association with the conservatives by disposition will often be embarrassing. Even when men approve of the same arrangements, it must be asked whether they approve of them because they exist or because they are desirable in themselves. The common resistance to the collectivist tide should not be allowed to obscure the fact that the belief in integral freedom is based on essentially forward-looking attitude and not on any nostalgic longing for the past or a romantic admiration for what has been. The need for a clear distinction is absolutely imperative, however, where, as is true in many parts of Europe, the conservatives have already accepted a large part of the collectivist creed, a creed that has governed policy for so long that many of its institutions have come to be accepted as a matter of course and have become a source of pride to conservative parties who created them. Here the believer in freedom cannot but conflict with the conservative and take an essentially radical position, directed against popular prejudices, entrenched positions, and firmly established privileges. Follies and abuses are no better for having been long-established principles of folly. Though quieta non mover may at times be a wise maxim for the statesman, it cannot satisfy the political philosopher. He may wish policy to proceed gingerly and not before public opinion is prepared to support it, but he cannot accept arrangements merely because current opinion sanctions them. In a world where the chief need is once more, as it was at the beginning of the 19th century, to free the process of spontaneous growth from the obstacles and encumbrances that human folly has erected, his hopes must rest on persuading and gaining the support of those who, by disposition, are progressives. Those who, though they may now be seeking change in the wrong direction, are at least willing to examine critically the existing and to change it wherever necessary. I hope I have not misled the reader by occasionally speaking of party when I was thinking of groups of men defending a set of intellectual and moral principles. Party politics of any one country has not been the concern of this book. The question of how the principles I have tried to reconstruct by piecing together the broken fragments of a tradition can be translated into a program with mass appeal. The political philosopher must leave to that insidious and crafty animal, vulgarly called a statesman or politician, whose consuls are directed by the momentary fluctuations of affairs. The task of the political philosopher can only be to influence public opinion, not to organize people for action. He will do so effectively only if he is not concerned with what is now politically possible, but consistently defends the general principles which are always the same. In this sense, I doubt whether there can be such a thing as a conservative political philosophy. Conservatism may often be a useful practical maxim, but it does not give us any guiding principles which can influence long-range developments. And that concludes Friedrich von Hayek's essay. I'll start with the obvious. Of course, Hayek was wrong about the word libertarian. As only a little over a decade later, the Libertarian Party would be founded. It is we who have adopted the classical liberalism Hayek referred to. And he was right to say 
that having a foundation of fundamental principles is what makes us what we are. Without them, there is no point in having a libertarian party. That is why we must know these ideas inside and out. We must present only the libertarian solutions to the problems created by the state, led by both so-called conservatives and so-called progressives. We must not cave to opportunistic tendencies to embrace whatever bullshit government program or agenda is being pushed to win the petty popularity contest in the voting booth. We must strive to win the loyalty of the remnant, to win hearts and minds and convert them to our cause wholly. It is only that way that we can secure a world set free in our lifetime. We must be radical idealists, proceed boldly against the evil of the state, and obstruct government fuckery. With that, Connor J. Nepo, signing out. Buy a t-shirt.